Hello and welcome to this series of podcasts on the subject of making lived experience matter with Nina Chesworth and me, Chris Wilson. During this series, we'll be talking with people from a range of backgrounds with different experiences, looking at the subject of making lived experience matter. Our guest today is Natalie Doig, who has 25 years or so experience in the disability field and is an independent consultant currently and has performed a number of roles throughout those years for various organisations. A very warm welcome, Natalie. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. We really appreciate you giving us your time today, Natalie. And as you know, we're making a series of podcasts on the subject of making lived experience matter. And something that we want to ask all our guests if I may start by asking you what what does that mean to you well it's funny that I was thinking about lived experience and as you mentioned early on I can't quite believe it but 25 years I've been working in the sort of disability rights field and lived experience actually meant something quite different about 20 years ago I first came across it in the sort of mental health sector And back then, when you talked about lived experience, it was a way to show that you might have lived experience of, say, a mental health condition, but you might not necessarily have that condition right at that time because it's a fluctuating condition. So I first came across it being used in those terms where it was there to denote, you know, maybe a, a condition somebody had that might not be always there with them. And then I came across lived experience about 10 years ago being used to talk about carers, people who had experience of living with people that have a disability or impairment. And so lived experience then became something that was more around other people who aren't disabled but have an experience of disability. So I think sometimes the actual term lived experience can be a bit difficult for people because they're not quite sure what you mean. But I think when we're talking about it in terms of the sight loss sector, we're actually talking about people who are visually impaired, people who are blind and partially sighted, and about engaging with them um, and finding out from them their experience of having that visual impairment. So I think, again, it's like a different use of the term, um, but that's what it kind of means to me now. So if I hear people talking about lived experience in the sight loss sector, to me it means actually working with, involving, co-producing work with people who have a visual impairment. But, you know, I'm open to the fact that it may mean different things to different people. Do you think, therefore, on the back of that, do you think it's important that we actually define lived experience in a way that everyone in the sight loss sector uh, uses, you know, we talk the same language, we mean the same thing. So when we talk about lived experience, everybody knows exactly what we mean. Exactly. Because I do think there is still a perception that when you talk about lived experience, you can also include people in that who might be a parent or a spouse or a child of somebody with a visual impairment. And and maybe we need a term that defines that wider group as well. But I think it is really important that we, you know, are clear about what we mean. Do we mean just visually impaired people, people who have uh, a visual impairment? Or do we mean a wider group of people. I've even seen it applied to um, medical professionals. 
because they work in the field of, say, sight loss or they work in a field that, um, you know, relates to disability. And I actually personally feel a little bit uncomfortable with that because that's a very different lived experience. That's medical experience that they've got and their experience and their, you know, point of view is incredibly important. But it's very, very different to the actual person who has an impairment or who is disabled. Well, it's really interesting, uh, Natalie. Thank you for, for that insight. And and just thinking about your experience with um, organisations outside of the sight loss sector, what do you think their knowledge is or understanding is of lived experience? And do you think it applies the same way to them in the sense of um, people who are not directly experiencing it and then those around them? Do you think it's kind of fluid throughout organisations? I think so, to a, to a certain extent. So um, I've worked very much in the sight loss sector. And then I've also worked in the much broader disability sector. And the thing that I see that's, I think, different is that in the disability sector, particularly if you work with groups, organisations of disabled people, their understanding of lived experience is, is very much, we're talking about disabled people, disabled people's experience, nothing about us without us. It's very much coming from the, that place of disabled people need to lead the conversation, they need to be leading the work. And that actually is quite, that goes back 20, 30, I mean, honestly, if you really look back, that goes back sort of 50, 60 years. But 20 years ago, when I was first working with those uh, disability organisations, they were already very much, that was what they were all about. You know, they were all about disabled people leading the agenda, being the decision makers, informing those decisions if they weren't the decision makers. When I look at the sight loss sector, I see some really great practice in this area. But I think what they haven't had is maybe that discussion about what it means which I think the wider disability sector the uh, particularly those organizations of disabled people were having 20 years ago um, I think if you look at the sight loss sector now they're starting to have those conversations and we're having it now aren't we what do we mean by lived experience and I think it's really important that we do listen to what everybody thinks lived experience should be and then we come up with a consensus within you know the sector that is this is what we mean by it and um, I think also some newer concepts that have come through like co-production um, moving away from sort of just engaging with um, disabled people and actually co-producing services with them has has meant that it's even more sort of important now for the sight loss sector to really decide amongst themselves what do we mean by lived experience because they want to co-produce work but they need to have some some of the sort of foundation uh, you know there first a really good strong foundation about what do we mean by lived experience and then you can build onto it the sort of co-production model. It's really interesting, actually. I was, I was just thinking as you were talking there, Natalie, about what aspects of work in other sectors that has progressed this this agenda further than it has in the sight loss sector. And you've talked one about one there straight away, the co-production. In your very varied career, are there other things you've seen, other aspects that we can start to think about bringing to the table in the sight loss sector as well as co-production are there other elements that you think are, are, are important 
yeah I think I think looking back one of the things that really sort of brought change about was actually looking at some of the more basic things that organizations do like how this is going to sound really boring but how do you procure your your you know the the services that you use and about like I say about 20 years ago a lot of particularly in the public sector as well they changed the way that they would procure services so that they were looking to make sure that if it was a project around disability that 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 service was informed by disabled people or even led by disabled people. So I think sometimes some of the really sort of more ordinary aspects of the way a organisation works can start to build in making sure that visually impaired people are involved. So something as simple as, okay, we need to hire an accountant. Well, we will make sure that it's a visually impaired accountant. And having those written into the sort of rules and policies that wherever possible, you will not only involve and engage with visually impaired people, but you will employ them or you will contract with them. That kind of thing was what was happening, say, 10, 20 years ago in the broader area of disability world. Just thinking about the interview we had with Dave on our last session, he mentioned about um lived experience with the individual and how we perceive that and if we have an understanding of what that means to us and how valuable that is and and what that can bring to a role and then the organizations kind of have an understanding of that as well and then we can advocate and, and make some noise as well for ourselves I suppose my question is what do you think and, and where do you think that responsibility lies? Um, is it with the organisation, the charity, or is it with the individual? Or is it like working together as a team to try and communicate that well and, and help me move things forward? I think it's always going to be both. I mean, ultimately, the responsibility lies with the organisation. If if you want to be the best organisation you can be for visually impaired people in your area, whatever that is, whatever area you cover, whether it's geographical or it's a particular, you know, thing that you do, you want the best people working for you and with you, and you'll want the best understanding you possibly can have of visual impairment. So it, it makes sense to have that perspective, to be listening to visually impaired people to have them making the decisions with you, to be working with you. But I suppose the other, the flip side of it is to say that, you know, if we go back to my visually impaired accountant, that accountant might be an absolutely brilliant accountant at doing their job, but they might not necessarily be interested in talking to you about their experience of being visually impaired. <laughs> so mm. I think it's very much looking at the different things. Um, and I've worked in a lot of disability organisations where I, I've come across this, where you'll have a lot of staff who choose to work for that organisation. And, and I've worked in organisations where, you know, about half, at least half of the staff were disabled. I've worked in organisations where it was near a 90% were disabled people. And in some of those organisations, you'll have a fair few disabled people who are there because they want to also share their experience. But you'll always have a group of people where it's like, no, I just want to do my job. And so that's why we can't just rely on employees. So I use that as a first example, you know, try and employ as many disabled people or visually impaired people as possible. But you also need to be doing those other things because 
I can represent my experience of visual impairment. It's very unique to me. And somebody with the exact same eye condition as me will have a very different experience of their visual impairment. They will have faced different barriers in their life as they've grown up. They will have faced different attitudes from different people. And so that's why it's so important that with the sort of lived experience agenda that you as an organisation are building in ways to hear all those different perspectives and from different types of people with visual impairment. You know, we need to hear from people who are visually impaired but are from the black and or ethnic minority backgrounds because their experience of living in Britain as a visually impaired person is going to be really different to mine as sort of a white middle-aged woman. We need to hear from young people. We need to hear from older people because so many visually impaired people are older. So it's finding ways to meaningfully have their involvement involvement. Um, And I think that's really important, the word meaningful, because certainly in the past, I came across, not not necessarily in the sight sector, this is across the whole sort of disability sector, you'll come across systems that are set up where it's like, we're going to listen to disabled people's voices, but then it ends up not necessarily being very meaningful. People will come in and say, this is what my experience is but it's kind of a bit aimless and it's a bit of a talking shop and then you don't really actually see any action come from it. So the best practice examples I've seen, it's been really focused on, we need to deliver this thing and we need to deliver that in partnership with people with lived experience and we're going to design it from the beginning through the middle to the end and evaluate it with them so that we've got them working with us all the way through and that might be different people at different stages but you know that doesn't really matter so much it's more the fact of having um, visually impaired people involved throughout that whole process. Natalie what do you think then are the barriers to making this more inclusive and, and you know, you talk about meaningful is such a, a powerful word, actually, rather than it being seen as a tick box exercise or, oh, we've consulted with everyone who, you know, <laughs> and that kind of thing. Where are the barriers that you see to, to, to us really progressing this agenda? So a lot of it comes down to, I think, time and, and resources and also finding the right people and being able to reimburse them in some way. And I'm not necessarily talking about always paying people with money, because sometimes actually people want something else from it. But those, I think, are the biggest barriers. It's the finding the people in the first place and then making making that engagement with them meaningful. So using their time in the best way absolutely possible. So I won't name the organisation. It was a sight loss organisation. And they had had a way of working for about 20 odd years where they met with their sort of community, shall we call it, on a regular basis. And they would have these meetings and they would talk about the organisation and they would have workshops and lots of really exciting things that were happening. But what they realised was it was always the same people coming to those events. And although it was a great way to hear what visually impaired people thought, they were only hearing one group of people. And even then, those group of people weren't saying they were having the best experience ever. And so they tried really hard to try and work out a different way of engaging with visually impaired people that wasn't so kind of prescriptive. And so this is the way we do it. And this is how we've always done it. And we will carry on doing it like this. And obviously, quite often, 
people don't like change. So there was quite a big backlash around, but we like coming here. We like coming here once a quarter and sitting around a table and drinking tea and, and talking. And it was, again, I think the thing that that I learned from watching that experience happen and when they tried to make changes, it was very important around the sort of communication of explaining why we need to do things differently. The fact that we do need to hear from a different group of visually impaired people. It, it can't always be the same people. We need to continue hearing what you say, but we also need to bring in some different voices. I think one of the issues that we have within the sight loss world that is very different to some of the other disability groups out there is that there is a really high level of isolation for many visually impaired people, particularly older people, where because, say, public transport is so bad where they live, um, maybe because they are older and so they have a multiple impairment, not just their visual impairment, it can be extremely difficult to hear their voice. And yet those are the exact people that most sight loss organisations will say they really want to reach. And so it's actually quite time consuming and resource heavy to try and organize your engagement and involvement work in a way so that you can hear those voices but when you do it's so worthwhile because you're hearing those people that are the hardest to reach and those that you really really want to help as a sight loss organization um so yeah i think it does involve a lot of sort of investment in time and resource and realizing that you can't do it overnight things won't happen overnight you have to have a clear plan of this is how we're going to change things and have a sort of you know your short-term medium-term and long-term goals how do you think we can bring more of them voices into the employment world so that they can be there to work with the organizations to help make the changes well that's a really really interesting one <laughs> and I think that's one of the I think it's been one of my frustrations. I started out in disability employment and that was my sort of specialism before I moved into doing sort of more broader services and transport work. And it's probably the area where I've seen over the last 20 years, no one has come up with a really good solution for this. Certainly not the government, certainly not sort of many disability organisations. We're still trying the same things that we've tried before around getting more visually impaired people or more disabled people actually employed and working with us. I think if I was talking about this more broadly, I'd say the area that hasn't really been pursued in the way it should have been is working with employers rather than working with, say, visually impaired people. Because the approach that I've seen for the last 30 years seems to be that we have an individual or a group of individuals who are disabled and they're not in work and they're the problem and we need to fix them. And having worked with so many disabled people over the years who are unemployed, it's very rarely them that's the problem. They're job ready. They want to work. Um, many people with sight loss, they did work. I, I worked at one point with a GP. She'd been a GP um, well into her 50s. She was now 55 and she'd lost her sight. And the NHS just didn't know what to do with her. It wasn't her fault. It's the NHS. Just think, we've got a GP shortage. She could have been bringing so, such a wealth of all that knowledge and experience she had 
to the NHS and maybe training GPs or maybe working in a call centre where you need to have GPs working. There were so many things she could be doing. But the NHS's response was, oh, my God, you've lost your sight. Panic, panic, panic. And this was only about five years ago. So I think it's quite often the employers who who you know, more generally are the ones who need to be thinking about disability differently. But when it comes to the sight loss sector, I think the difference we have here is, is that most sight loss organisations do want to employ visually impaired people. I think some of them, some organisations out there are brilliant at it and they do employ lots of visually impaired people. But there's some organisations out there who've kind of, I think, are still scared they're still worried they're going to get it wrong. So their their fears are very different to a sort of mainstream employer's fears. So they understand sight loss, but they're really scared they're going to get it wrong and they're going to let down the, the visually impaired person. They're really scared that they're going to set the visually impaired person up to fail. Quite often they don't act, it's really weird, but quite often they don't actually know that much about reasonable adjustments um, because they don't focus necessarily on employment or the bit of their organisation that does focus on employment isn't in HR, if you see what I mean. So when HR are looking at who, who do we employ, they're not really thinking about how can we do this in an, in an inclusive way. But I think a lot of it is that fear of getting it wrong, that fear of if we employ somebody who's visually impaired, what do we do if they struggle? What do we do if we can't get the reasonable adjustments right? What do we do if they're not the right fit for the job? And my answer is you treat it just the same as you would any other employee who may be struggling or who may not be you know, right for that job. But at the same time, you know, you you build in all that knowledge that you have around how to support visually impaired people and the fact that, you know, talk to experts in making reasonable adjustments for visually impaired people and you will get it get it right there must be it makes you think when you put it like that Natalie there's enough experience and knowledge within the sector for the sector to help itself (laughs) exactly exactly because even if your organization doesn't specialize in employment there are lots of sight loss organizations out there that do so I think maybe that kind of pooling resources sharing expertise those organisations that already employ a large number of visually impaired people can certainly help other organisations. I have to say, and it isn't unique to the visually impaired sector, but within the sight loss sector that does sometimes in the past, there was a bit of competitiveness between organisations. I mean, there still is. And it's that oh, we can't work with so-and-so on this because they'll poach all our best staff or, oh, but, you know, our services don't, I don't want to clash with their services. And that's got to be forgotten. I think that's what happened about 20 years ago with the disability organisations of disabled people. I think they basically realised that they weren't in competition with each other anymore and they needed to work collaboratively around this for each other's good. And I think that also needs to happen. And it, it's it happens in all sectors of you know the working world out there. Wherever you work, organisations will be kind of competitive and that is understandable but I think when your actual reason for existing is to help you know remove barriers for people with visual impairment sometimes you've got to sort of be grown up and say actually no we're going to work together on this for everyone's good and you know that's the important part of it. I think um, yeah that will probably resonate with a lot of people actually that observation and uh, food for thought absolutely Natalie Natalie we could talk for hours I'm sure about this but um, (laughs) I'm just aware of time Mm -hmm. 
I'm very conscious of you've given us a lot of food for thought there. You know, it's really interesting to hear what you said. And I think it's fascinating, really interesting, lots of things to think about, go away and, and look at, you know, about how we could start to, to do things better in the sector. One thing I'd like to ask you before we go is, is for anybody listening to this, what message would you have? What what action could, could somebody take? Just an individual who's listening to this and thinks, do you know what? Yeah. There's some good stuff there, some interesting points, or we need to be better. What, what would you uh, what would you say to them? I'm going to split that in two, if that's all right. Yeah. If you're a visually impaired individual listening to this, my message to you is your voice matters. What you have to say is so important because your experience is completely unique, but it will also have aspects of it that will resonate with other visually impaired people so it's really important to share your voice in whatever way you can and if that's being part of a sight loss organization or attending an event or listening to more podcasts like this and then I don't know talking about them on social media or if it's just talking to the people that you see in your life about your experience it's so important to 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 tell people about what your experience is and how you're doing in life that is really important and have the the courage to do it and don't listen to that little voice in your head saying oh it's okay someone else will have said this or shared this what you have to say is really important for organizations I think my message would be about sometimes you have to take a risk a measured and you know, evaluated risk, but sometimes you have to just say, okay, we're going to try it. We will try this project as a co-production route. We will we will change the way we're currently involving visually impaired people to try and reach out to some different people. Sometimes you have to do something that's a little bit different and change can be really, really scary because all of us get used to the way we're working. So my advice would be to, if you know, if you've been, if you've listened today and you've been inspired by anything, go away and have a look at what you're currently doing and see if there's one thing that you could change where it just feels that little bit uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable because it's exciting and you know that it's the right thing to do. That's my, that's my sort of challenge to the sight loss sector. A very positive note to end on. (laughs) Natalie, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. there Fiona here from Visionary again hope you loved listening to Natalie please take the time to share the podcast with at least one other person next up is Claire I'm so I hope you enjoy listening to her